We're going to be in Luke chapter 18 today. We're talking about Christ being king over the church's prayer. Right, we've been in this series looking at the preeminence of Christ in all of life. We've looked at him as king over us individually and then over our families and now collectively as his church. And this last verse of the song says, boldly we can approach his eternal throne because of what Christ has done for us. And so that's what we're talking about this morning is Christ being king over the church's prayer that we have this great privilege of approaching the throne of grace together and individually as his church. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 this morning. One of the most conspicuous things about Jesus' life and his ministry in the days of his flesh was his prayer life. And if you were to consider what the most conspicuous thing about him now being ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father, and you're saying, what's the most conspicuous thing about what we know of what the living Christ is doing right now? You would say it's his prayer life, that he ever lives to intercede for his people. And we, church, are being conformed to the image of Christ. And so one of the things that that means, at the very least, is that as we grow up together into our head, who is Christ Jesus, we become more like him. And one of the things that that means is that we will become more prayerful. We will become like him in his intercessory prayer. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus declared that God's house would be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And so he has designed for us individually, as we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit, that we would individually be houses of prayer, a, a walking worship service, a, a place where prayers ascend from the temples of our hearts to our God night and day, but also that we would collectively be a house of prayer. We are being built up as a living temple collectively together as a place for God to dwell by his Spirit. And he's designed for his house to be a house of prayer. When he quoted this verse from Isaiah that's listed in all the synoptic gospels, he was rebuking them because they had made the temple a place where they were making profit, making money. They had made space in the temple for the God of mammon. And so Jesus was driving that out. He was purifying the temple so that it would be the house of prayer that he had called it to be. So our text this morning is all about praying without losing heart. Now our problem, Jesus would not have said that unless our tendency was to grow faint-hearted in prayer. He, he gave us a parable specifically so that we would not grow discouraged or weary in our praying. So that's, that's a, an alarm to us or a trigger to us to let us know that one of our great problems when it comes to prayer is that we grow discouraged in our praying. You might feel like you have prayed and prayed and prayed and it just doesn't seem to be working. God's timing is so much different than your timing and so you just, you grow weary in it. God, I, I, I tried praying for that and it doesn't feel like it's making a difference. I run into this all the time. Another, so if, if discouragement is one of our problems, distraction is another. It may be a primary one for you, right? It's, 
It's prayer plus. It's not setting aside time to actually pray because we feel like we have other things that are too pressing or more interesting or that might be more effective in accomplishing this need that we have, and so we're distracted in our prayers. In James chapter 4, the brother of Christ writes that we have a twofold problem in prayer, either that we don't pray at all, so we have prayerlessness as a problem, but also that when we do pray, often we're asking with wrong motives. We're asking for ourselves instead of for the glory of God and according to the will of God. But this is good news for us because just like our prayerlessness is not good news, but here is the good news, that just like Christ drove out the money changers and purified the temple in his day, he is so committed to you decreasing and him increasing in your heart and life and him being magnified, unrivaled in his church, that he will drive out from your life all that keeps you from becoming like him in your prayer life. And that is our great comfort and our hope today and what I'm praying that he would do this morning, that we would see every obstacle and everything that raises itself up against really being like Christ in our praying together and individually, and that he would drive those things from us and purify the temple of our hearts so that we can be the houses of prayer and the house of prayer that he's called us to be. So let's pray to that end, and then we'll dive into Luke 18. Father, we know that no one can discern the things of the Spirit of God or really gain revelation from your word apart from your Spirit's enabling. So what we're asking for right now, Father, is a miracle. We are your children, called by your name, you have redeemed for your own possession. We believe that you want to speak to us. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. Open our hearts, Father. Make us eager, make our hearts thirsty soil for the seed and the watering of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Luke chapter 18. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So our main idea this morning, the banner over our time together, and we don't have to look further than verse 1, this text is like a treasure chest that Jesus leaves us a key by the latch. If you want to understand what this parable is about, I'm giving it to you at the outset that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
So you could say, because Christ is king over the church's prayer, we ought always to pray and not lose hearts. Now, we're going to get to this more in the parable, but I want us to remember at the outset, as a, as a banner over our time together, that God is a righteous father to those who have been redeemed by Christ, and he delights to hear the prayers of his children. And so they, you need to let that flavor this meal all the way through, that God delights to hear the prayers of his children and that he is always working even when it seems like he's not listening. He's always at work. And he is teaching his children in life, and he desires to teach us this morning. So the first observation I want to look at from this text with you is that Christ calls us to pray with passion. So let's pray fervently. So in, in all of these sections, I went extremely Baptist on you to be to make these super memorable. So you're going to see uh, different ways that Christ has called us to pray that start with a P, and you are welcome if, if it helps you to remember. But in each case, I want it to have this takeaway for us that because he's called us to pray with passion, we ought to pray fervently in our prayers. So prayer in this parable is represented by this widow coming to this judge in the midst of her need. And so we're really talking about, when we talk about Christ being king over the church's prayer this morning, we're really talking about Christ being king over our supplication and our intercession together. So there is a, a praying or a communing with God that is praise and adoration. But this morning, we're really talking about coming to God in the midst of our need and asking Him to meet some great material need or spiritual need that we have for ourselves or intercession for others. And so it's significant at the outset that we see that it's a widow that the Lord uses in this parable as an example of the inquirer. There was no greater category of people that were more needy or vulnerable or had need of care and protection in the Word of God than the widow. It is why true and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to care for widows in their need. Or when God calls His people to repent in Isaiah chapter 1, He says, learn to plead the widow's cause. This is someone in great need. And so we are represented by her in this text. Now, we are similar to the widow, but God and the unrighteous judge are contrasted. So don't miss that. It's not that we are contrasted with the widow. We, in our midst of our great need, are called to come to God like this widow. And one of the things I want you to see about her coming to him continually is that the magnitude of our neediness and our inability to find help anywhere else drive us to desperate prayer. So the magnitude of our need and our inability to find an answer to that need anywhere else drives us to pray with desperation before God. So to illustrate this, I want you to think about times in your life when you've been driven to prayer. You may think about um, when you found out that somebody had an illness and compare the fervency with which you prayed when it was an illness that you knew was temporary 
versus finding out that somebody that you love was diagnosed with a terminal illness, but there's a cure, versus finding out that someone you love has a terminal illness and there is no cure. And you can see how your level of fervency and your desperation before God would be magnified with every step. You're praying, but you're praying, you know they're going to recover, but they ask you to pray, and so you toss a prayer out there. And we should pray with fervor, but when you find out that someone you love has a terminal illness and there's a cure, that gets ramped up. The frequency with which you're praying, the fervency with which you're praying gets ramped up massively. But if you find out that the only hope is prayer, you are on your face night and day, pleading with God to break through. And so I say that to illustrate the truth that if we do not recognize the magnitude of our neediness before God, if we don't believe that prayer really works, which there are examples in Scripture, like in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus talks about the demonic and says, this kind only comes out with, and he names the biggest weapon, prayer. This is such a a serious case, so, a stronghold so demonic, this kind only comes out with the biggest weapon that we have, prayer. But if you lose sight of the fact that prayer is how God has ordained to work through his people, and you lose sight of the magnitude of your need, or you feel like there are other means of solving the problem in addition to prayer, then you will use prayer to sprinkle all of your labor and toil and not be the primary means of breakthrough itself. But prayer is not supplemental to your more practical considerations. Prayer is primary, and it matters how we pray to God. Did you know that? That it matters to God how you pray to Him? It is the fervent or the earnest prayers of the righteous that have great power in their working, James 5, 17. It's not just the cold and lifeless prayers of a righteous person availeth much. It is when you pray and your prayers are fused with praying. That's the language that he uses for Elijah. Elijah prayed with his prayers. It's this doubling that's saying he was fervent in his prayers and the fervent prayers of the righteous have great power in their working. When the Lord you describes this parable, and he's breaking it down to his disciples after he's told them the story. He says that prayer is his elect crying out to him day and night. This praying is with all of our hearts, and it's a far cry from distracted prayer or disinterested prayer. Biblical prayer is not lukewarm, and it's not lifeless. We know that it is possible to honor God with our lips while our hearts are far from Him. Now, how often has that marked, if you're honest, how often has that marked your prayer life or your non-prayer life? Where we draw near to God with our lips, we're, we're voicing the prayers, but our hearts are somewhere else. These two quotes I'm about to read to you, I pulled from a book called Mighty Prevailing Prayer by Wesley Duell. I've not read the whole thing but the parts that I have read, I think would be a blessing to you. He says that Richard Watson, a theologian who lived about 200 years ago, wrote, prayer without fervency is no prayer. It is speaking, not praying. 
Lifeless prayer is no more prayer than a picture of a man is a man. It's, it's representative. It looks like prayer. A picture of a man looks like the man, but it's not the man itself. J.W. Acker adds, incense can neither smell nor ascend without fire. No more does prayer unless it arises from spiritual warmth and fervency. Cold, lifeless, and idle prayers are like birds without wings. Mere lip prayers are lost prayers. So when we're talking about fervency, we're talking about what the Scripture says, pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us. He's calling us to come with all of our hearts to speak to Him and cry out to Him in the midst of our great need in humility with all of our hearts. We're not talking about conjuring up feelings or emotions or stoking enough external excitement so that we can twist God's arm like, oh, God likes it when I get like super amped up and, and we can have this surface level excitement still while our hearts are far from Him or like we're trying to manipulate God. But fervent prayer doesn't always have to have a certain posture. It's not like it's, it's fervent when you're on your knees, but it's not fervent when you're standing up. Or like it's fervent when you're crying out and, you're, and you have tears, but then when you're just boldly praying with all of your heart, it's somehow less fervent than with tears. But certainly it should sometimes involve you getting on your face before God, lying prostrate before God in the midst of your great neediness. Certainly, sometimes it ought to involve actually crying out to Him in a way that is undignified and bold and desperate. You can pray with a fervent heart in the quiet of your own heart. You think about Hannah's prayer, pouring out her soul to God, and she just looks like she's muttering to herself quietly. What matters is where is your heart before God when you're praying? Are you praying with all of your heart? We're talking about praying like Christ and seeking Him and asking for Him to teach us His own praying. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says, In the days of Christ's flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Literally means his, his reverent submission to God. He was coming to God as the only source of his hope, of his need. He was able to save his soul from death. And he came, don't miss this, with loud cries and with tears. Now, it's so important that this is coming from the heart. We're not emulating Christ's loud cries and tears from the surface. This kind of praying shows that there is a heart of humility that sees God as its only hope, and it's a heart of true love that pours itself out for others in intercession. So without true humility, you won't come to God and sense your desperate need, but without a heart of true love, you're not going to actually pray for other peoples with genuine care like you would be praying for yourself. And it's a heart of true faith that believes that God is our only hope. And this only place in Scripture where we're told that we don't know how to pray as we ought, which anybody? I mean, this is one thing that we can all resonate with and get on board with immediately is that we don't know how to pray as we ought, and Scripture tells us as much. 
So if this feels remotely overwhelming or like, oh man, I'm going to have to change everything about my prayer life, yes, probably. And we're probably going to have to continue because none of us knows how to pray as we ought to pray. But we are offered with that stark reality, this amazing promise, this gracious promise from God in Romans 8, 26. The Spirit helps us in the midst of our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, how? With groanings, too deep for words. So I think in that verse, you have both the diagnosis and the cure, that is the aid. What is the problem with your praying, believer? You don't know how to pray as you ought. Well, surely if he's supplementing with groanings too deep for words, then part of it is you don't know how to pray fervently like you ought. You don't know how to burn the incense in a way that rises to the Father, in a way that's acceptable to God. But Christ, by his Spirit, comes inside of you. And he supplements your prayers with his own praying, by his Spirit, with groanings deeper than words. And so we pray. Without conjuring up fervency, we just say, God, I am going to be all here, not distracted, not discouraged, not growing weary. I'm going to pour out my heart to you. And I'm praying that as I do, would you teach me how to pray like Christ? Would you supplement my praying with your own praying with fervency? That's what Jesus describes this widow's coming. It's fervent. She's crying out day and night. So he gave us this parable, yes, that we should pray. And that prayer looks like crying out with fervency before God. It's passionate prayer. But he also said that we should do so always. So Christ calls us to pray with persistence. So let us pray frequently. This is not faith. You would think if somebody had true faith, then they could just pray one time and be done. Move to mountain with the prayer. I'm done. But that's not how Jesus describes faith in this parable. Faith looked like coming again and again and again. You can listen to this language that he uses about the widow's persistence. In verse 3, he says that she kept coming. In verse 5, it says she kept bothering the judge. And again in verse 5, the judge feared her beating him down by her continual coming. That beating him down literally means to blacken his eye. He was afraid that this widow was going to beat him up by her continual beating him, striking him with her request for justice against her adversary. In verse 7, Christ describes his elect people crying out to him day and night. Now, the reason why we have to keep asking is because like the unrighteous judge, God will make us wait for what seems to us like a while. Now, he says he won't delay long over them. He'll, he'll answer them speedily. But how many of us know that speedily to God feels a little bit differently to you? He's coming soon, he said. And we all want it soon to be yesterday. He will make you feel, wait for what feels like a while, to put it lightly. He made a promise to Abraham concerning his seed, 25 years later, 
they got the answer to the promise. Now, undergirding all of our praying and waiting on God has to be this knowledge that He is working all things together according to His perfect wisdom and understanding. That He is kind in all of His ways and righteous in all of His works. And He's working in us for His good pleasure. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. So we know that as we're praying, whatever He's doing while we're waiting on the answer, He is working all things according to His perfect wisdom. He is being kind to us. He's forming Christ in us, even as we don't understand why He's waiting or why He's not answering in the ways that we've asked. And so we keep coming. I want you to listen to what, the, what Christ says in this text. He says, consider what the unrighteous judge says, right? He, was, he gave in because you kept asking. And he compares that kind of importunate prayer, that kind of continual asking. He says, this is the kind of praying that the Father loves to hear. The Father loves it when we come to him with a bold and continual insistence that is according to his word and according to his promises. God does not answer our prayers when we continually come to him and it's for ourselves. Moses did that. He continually came to God so that he could get into the land and God said, stop asking me about that. I've already answered you. But when he continually comes to him and asks us about other people, it delighted the heart of God. God talked about being done with the people, and Moses comes to him again and again and continues to talk back to God, throwing into God's face his promises and his glory. And he says, God, what about what you said? What about your name, God? And it says that God relents and answers Moses. Now, God was always going to do what he was going to do, but he was working in Moses. And you see the same thing throughout the saints, all throughout the scriptures, them coming to him again and again, and he is working, but there's a process that he delights in where he's teaching us as we boldly come to him in faith. And listen to the Lord contrasting him with this unrighteous judge. There's probably not a greater injustice than a judge who's supposed to mete out what is just and right, not fearing God and not respecting man. And here's this widow who has a case against somebody who's doing her wrong, and he refuses to hear it. And Jesus is saying, if this judge was unrighteous and didn't fear God and didn't want to hear what the widow had to say, and he was overcome by her continual asking, then how much more so God himself, who is the righteous judge of all the earth, who you get to call Father. It's the main thing that he taught us when he taught us to pray. First word out of his mouth, Father in heaven. I am allowing you to call on God as your Father, and he delights to hear prayer. And so how much more so will God not relent and give in to the prayers of his people when we continually ask him. This woman was a stranger to the judge and had no one to plead for her, and she overcame him by her continual persistence. How much more effective will our persistence in prayer be? 
when we're not strangers but children. And instead of having no one to plead our cause, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's supplementing our own praying with his own. Now, I want to make sure we don't miss this. It's not that our persistence in prayer somehow changes God's mind as if we're twisting God's arm to do something that he doesn't want to do. But this is the kind of praying in faith that God has ordained to answer and to meet with mercy. This is the kind of prayer that God honors when he brings you deeper into relationship. He brings you deeper into faith and into humility and into Christ-likeness through the process of coming to him and insisting that he honor his word and that he glorify his name. You see the same reasoning Christ gives in Luke 11. So you can flip back a couple of pages. This one we don't have slides for from Luke 11. Jesus is telling a similar parable. He says to them, which of you has a friend? We'll go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give, get up and get you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or literally audacity, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and keep on asking and it will be given to you. These are present tense verbs. They mean ask and keep on asking. It will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking. You will find, knock, and keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And so he is affirming this idea of importunate prayer, importunity, like this utter, shameless, bold, audacious coming again and again and again to the point of you would be annoyed with yourself asking this much until he breaks through, until he does what he said he would do. This importunate prayer is the audacity of the friend. It's the coming to the judge until you blacken his eye. He wants us to keep on asking. He wants us to seek him. And he says, listen to this. I'm your father. I want to give you good gifts. You're not going to ask me for something good and I'm going to give you something terrible instead. So he calls us to trust him and to keep seeking, to keep knocking, and to keep asking, all while trusting him. This is really hard to do, which is why he says, don't grow weary in it. I have felt this. This has been so nourishing to my own soul, to be laboring over your souls, to be laboring over the wayward among us who have gone out from us and to be crying out to God day and night for their souls and to see nothing happen. It's exhausting and it's hard. And he says, when I come, will I find faith? He is working in us in the midst of our asking, in the midst of our laboring. He's teaching us how to labor and agonize in prayer. 
This is the language that Paul uses. Strive together with me in your praying to God on my behalf. It means to agonize, to throw your soul into it, and plead, to fight and wrestle with God for Him to do what seems pleasing to Him. We have to see that He's ordained this wrestling because He's cultivating desire and faith in us. He wants us to find him, but he's jealous for all of us. So he says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with what? All your heart. So you seek him, you pray, but it's not with all your heart. And so he waits. And then you seek him and you pray, but it's not with all your heart. And so he's teaching you, he's wooing you, he's leading you into deeper intimacy with him. This looks like walking past his disciples on the water. It looks like acting like he was going to go further on the Emmaus Road until they urge him or call out to him, and then he reveals himself to them. He's wrestling with us like Jacob until we learn to cry out, I will not let go until you bless me. God, I'm not letting go. I'm not going to stop asking you for this. He calls this continual coming and insistence in prayer based on his word, faith. Faith. I think one of the best Old Testament examples of this truth is, comes from Isaiah chapter 62. I've got it for you on the screen. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. Now he talks to the watchmen. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So he says, this is what it looks like to pray with fervency and to pray frequently, right? This importunate prayer that's persistent. I'm not letting go. Don't miss this. This, this judge grew weary before the widow did. She tired him out. And this is the language that God says, this is the kind of praying that I want from my watchmen. I want you to stay awake, and I want you to remind me of what I have said. That's what it says. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Just in case this isn't clear, God does not forget. Right? He doesn't need you to remind him. But he's commanded it because he has ordained for his people to know his word and to hold up his word to him and said, God, you promised. You said you would build your church. And yet all around, it looks like the walls are torn down. And so we are praying and we are going to keep coming and we're not going to let you rest on this until you make your name a praise in the earth, until you build Rivertown, and it becomes a prophetic witness that it's called to be until we become a body that grows up into maturity. God, until my neighbor knows you, until my kids walk with you, I will not let you rest. I am going to annoy you to death on this until you come through. And he says, it's not annoying. This is what I wanted. This is what I was leading you into, to come to me continually and not lose heart. So true faith pours itself out in prayer. It looks away from self and unbelief. It looks away from our circumstances and what we think we can see with the eyes, 
with our physical eyes, and it looks with eyes of faith, and it comes to him without giving up. This is the last observation from this parable. Christ calls us to pray with perseverance. So with patience, with passion, and with persistence, yes, but also with perseverance. So we must pray faithfully. This is this continual coming of the widow. It's one thing to pray day and night. It's, a one, it's another to pray day after day and night after night, continually, when it seems like there's no hope of an answer or like the answer has been no. I mean, don't miss this. Somebody with great power and position over her was saying no, was putting her off. And she was not taking no for an answer. And Jesus commends her and says, pray like this. Remember the key that the Lord gave us at the start of this parable, the reason why he told it to us is so that we would always pray and not lose heart. The reason why God gives us any of his commands is because our great tendency is to lose heart and to grow weary in prayer, to grow discouraged, to feel like it's not working. Who of us can't resonate with this scene from Prince Caspian where Peter looks at Lucy and he says, I think we've waited for Aslan long enough. You feel like that? It's like, I've been praying for this a long time. Now, you may have reached a place where you know that that doesn't mean you go out and try really hard in the flesh, but maybe it just means you give up in general. Like, this is just not going to happen. And I am exhausted. I am done praying. And so, yeah, just asked him about this too many times. I'm done. But he's calling us to not grow discouraged or faint-hearted in the midst of him not answering the way that we're asking or in the timing that we're asking for. It's like Abraham. He didn't grow weary in unbelief, but what? Grew strong in faith, believing that he who promised is faithful. That's what God's doing in us. He's, he's increasing the strength of our faith as we look to him and we know Which one requires greater faith? Which one's a greater challenge to the character and nature of God? God answering right away? Or are you continuing to trust him in the midst of him asking you to wait, causing you to wait? He's building faith in you and is calling you to grow strong in faith, knowing that he who promised is faithful. He's kind in all of his ways and just in all of his works. There is passage when the Israelites are coming into the land and they're to drive out all the enemies but they don't drive everyone out and then the the scripture says something curious it says that God left the people in the land why so that his people would learn warfare so that you would actually learn how to fight and this is some of what God is doing in the midst of not answering your prayers the way that you're asking is he's teaching you warfare. He's teaching you how to fight. And prayer is war. This is what's so different than our kind of casual communion with God, which tosses up a couple lifeless prayers. It, it totally doesn't, uh, it's not commiserate with the reality around us. It kind of pretends like the Disneyland that we can see is our reality instead of this wartime mindset that realizes we're in a fight for souls. You're in a fight to know God, and the, you have an enemy of your soul who's coming against you, and prayer 
is warfare. And so God is teaching us how to war, and he's teaching us how to war together. The opposite of losing heart, Jesus says, he tells us this this parable so that we would not lose heart. The opposite of losing heart is continuing steadfastly in prayer. It's persevering in prayer together, together towards a common goal. So you can see he's telling this parable to his disciples, plural, and he says, when his elect, plural, cry out to him day and night. So this, this is not just something that we're to do individually, but something that we come together to do and we strive together toward a goal of seeing God answer his promises and glorify his name through our lives. And we persevere in it together. We don't give up in it together. This is the scene on which the Lord Jesus sent his spirit in Acts chapter 1. Jesus had commanded his disciples to wait and to pray, and it says the church was waiting on him in devoted prayer. This word for devotion is this continued steadfastly together, this persevering. So it's the same language that the Bible uses for the church all throughout the book of Acts. They were devoted in prayer together. The result of God pouring out his spirit on his people was their continued devotion in prayer. Acts 2.42, they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And this word for devotion to prayer, the word to continue steadfastly in prayer together, is the same language that Paul uses throughout his letters when he describes the way that God's people pray together. To wait on the Lord together and to persevere in it until God breaks through. You see this in Romans chapter 12. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or Ephesians 6, 18, literally in the passage, talking about putting on the armor of God, and he's got all these defensive measures, and then he gives us one offensive weapon in how to wield it. You've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and it is wielded in prayer. Prayer is the hand that puts the offense to work. It's how we even put all the armor on. And so Paul caps all this language of standing firm against the devil together and warring together. He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So there's that praying with prayer. See that fervency? I want you to pray at all times. You ought always to pray. But there's a way that you ought to pray. You need to pray with prayer and supplication. It's this fervent praying. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. It's the same language as be devoted to prayer. Be constant in prayer. It's the same word. Pray with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So here's the question for us, friends. When the Son of Man comes, will he find that kind of faith on the earth? Will he find that kind of faith in our church? Will he find that kind of faith in you? Can he say of you right now that you don't have because you don't ask? Or that you're praying and you're asking, but you're not receiving because you're praying so that you can spend it on your pleasures? You're praying with wrong motives. Jesus, the Lord of his church, Christ being king over his church commands that his church have a prayer life together 
where we always pray and we don't lose heart. If Jesus says that we ought to do something, then it is sin not to, right? It's disobedience not to. Samuel even says that for the people. It's one of the most convicting passages about pastoral prayers over the flock where Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against you by ceasing to pray for you or by neglecting to pray for you. So we ought, ought in obedience to Christ to travail together in prayer, to labor together in prayer again and again and again until our Father in heaven grants what we ask of him according to his word according to his promises, according to his will. We're not, this is not a message for here's how to have effective prayers before God in three steps. Here's how to get what you want from God. That kind of praying doesn't honor God. He says you don't have because you're praying with wrong motives. But if we ask according to his will, then we know that we have what we ask of him. But he may ordain that the asking take place again and again and again. He's working. He's working out there. He's working in here. And he says, beloved, don't give up. Your father delights to hear your prayer. He's working in you. How will he who did not spare his own son not freely with him give you all things? All things. All things belong to you. But we know that he's working all these things that belong to you together for the good of your conformity to the image of Christ. And one of the ways he's conforming you to the image of Christ is making you like Christ in his intercession. So let's not grow weary in this. Let's not give up in it. Let's not say, well, that's for, God, do we miss Ethel or what? That's for people like Ethel who have a gift. Christ wants to bring all of us into this kind of love for him and love for people that expresses itself in prayer. Asking him because there's nowhere else that we could go. He has the words of eternal life and interceding for others because we love them. And the greatest way that we can love them is by praying for them. So, Eric, you guys can come up or come with the elements. But preparing this message has my own faith renewed. I knew when I came to it, I, I was thinking, I need this more than any of you. Because I've been discouraged in prayer. I have been discouraged because we pray for you faithfully. We pray for you together as pastors every Monday. We pray for the wayward who you don't see here. Uh, day and night. I tell you this all the time. Like, I don't get to go to sleep without thinking about the flock. It's just pastoral burden. We pray night and day. And when you're longing to see us grow up and press on into maturity, and you're praying for the one to come back to the 99, and they don't, it is easy to grow weary and to say, God, how long? How long do you want me to pray like this? How long do you want me to continue to pour out my heart before you? And you know what he says to us? Keep coming. Keep coming. Come boldly, come audaciously, come by the blood of Christ for mercy and help in times of need. Come again and again and again because I am working. And even if he calls us, you to wait for a while, we need to trust him. And this kind of trust, this kind of faith looks like 
we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be the house of prayer that you've called your church to be. Father, I just for us collective for us collectively repent before you. Lord, none of us individually knows how to pray as we ought. We know that. You have told us that. But even in the midst of that, we have been marked by a prayerlessness that doesn't sense the magnitude of our need before you or sees prayer as supplemental to our working, to our anxious toil. God, we repent. Lord, would you teach us to pray passionately, not to offer you cold or lifeless prayers or always on-the-go prayers, but help us to get on our face before you and to pour out our hearts before you until you have all of us. Teach us to pray boldly and continually. Lord, make us passionate and persistent and persevering in our praying. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that your spirit helps us, gives us aid in our praying in all the midst of our great need. You supplement our praying with your own praying and make it acceptable to the Father. We praise you. You are a gracious and a good God. Please, Lord, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.